she told President Truman, she told George Marshall, I have a lot of bullseyes on my chest. I'm Jewish, I'm an immigrant, I have an accent, I'm a civilian woman, I'm a former New Dealer, and yet they still chose her and they wanted her to be in that position. Hi, I'm Christopher C. Gorm, the author of The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shaped modern America. The Confidant, this remarkable woman, her name was Anna Rosenberg, and she was FDR's stylish secret weapon, both on the home front and in the, in the battlefields of Europe, and that was just the first act. In 1950, she became the Assistant Secretary of Defense during the Korean War, and for 26 months, uh, acted in that capacity, and this is her story. Christopher Gorham is a lawyer and a teacher, more importantly, a teacher of modern American history at Westford Academy, a public school outside of Boston. Uh, he lives in Watertown and uh, Chatham, uh, Massachusetts, and he's talking about Anna Rosenberg. Uh, she, she's born in an, another land. She's born in uh, Budapest. Uh, and when did she come to the United States? She arrived in the United States uh, two years after her father had come uh, to rebuild his life. So she arrived in uh, 1912, the classic way, on a ship from Europe, you know, sailing under the Statue of Liberty, being processed at Ellis Island, and then starting her new life in New York City. And in New York City, she did um, work when she was in high school, right, about uh, settling a, a, a strike, and that became sort of her life's calling. She, she was a negotiator. That's exactly right. She was in the New York public schools, and as a 17-year-old, she found herself in the pages of the New York Times for the first time. And, you know, she was going to be in that paper for the next seven decades regularly. But she mediated a student strike during World War I, and that was her calling. She was a mediator. She was somebody who could bring disparate factions together and find a mutual solution. It seems to me I found two answers to this question. Did she finish high school? <laughs> Well, I don't want to give too much away, but the answer is is no. Um, she there in the clue. The clue, Bob, is in her obituary, which uh, says her her date of birth was in July of 1901, and her real date of birth I found was July of 1899. So I speculate that her parents fudged her age by two years to try and get her some of that free public education in New York. In fact, somebody asked me when hearing about this story, well, where'd she go to college? She didn't go to college, right? <laughs> That's right. That's remarkable about her. You know, as a teenager, she's at the New York Times. She's a very smart person. She's an incredibly hardworking person, very, very smart, speaks multiple languages, but was asked to leave high school and then um, did not go beyond that. So it's it's a recently someone asked me the question, would, would her career even be possible today uh, in, in our society where we're, we're, we're looking at resumes with such a, with such a keen eye? And, you know, I don't, I'm not sure it would be. I'm not sure her career would even be possible today. And she got involved in, in politics. And again, this is now in New York State. or, or uh, she, she grew up in the Bronx, didn't she? Maybe I should ask you that. She did. She started her life in... America started in the Bronx, and then they moved to uh, the northern edge of Manhattan near Central Park. During this time, her father had become uh, a fiercely patriotic American, 
and he instilled in Anna these, this love of this new country that had given the family uh, a new opportunity. You know, Pledge of Allegiance, the, the women's right to vote, the opportunity to make your voice heard. So even as a, a teenager and then a young married woman, Anna Rosenberg, Anna Letterer, then Rosenberg, when she was married, was extremely patriotic and always found time to dabble in politics or work in politics, even when she was trying to make a living. Anna Letterer, that was her maiden name, then she married a man named uh, Rosenberg. And how did she get involved uh, with the Roosevelts, Franklin and Eleanor? After leaving high school, a woman named Belle Moskowitz uh, had hired her. Belle Moskowitz was sort of the de facto chief of staff of the governor of New York at the time, Al Smith, and was just amazed by this young woman's, you know, uh, work ethic and smarts. So Anna becomes very interested in, in politics, in going to the, the Tammany Hall speakers and listening to their speeches. She meets a Tammany Hall guy. He mentors her. And a couple of years later, it's 1928, and Anna is now 28 years old, she's at a, a Democratic tea hosted by Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor sees this young woman. What do you do? And she says, well, I'm Anna Rosenberg, and, and I'm in labor relations and public relations. And Eleanor Roosevelt says, well, my husband is running for governor of New York, and he could use someone like you on his team. So come meet, so come to our town, townhouse and meet uh, my husband. So that's, hmm. that's how, it, how it worked out. She finds herself at age 28 on the, on the Roosevelt governor team with Jim Farley and, and Francis Perkins and, and Louis Howe. And Francis Perkins, we've had a podcast about in recent years from our friend Jim Kaplan. Uh, she became FDR's Secretary of Labor, right? That's right. The two women, as uh, the New Deal, of course, well, Gu- Roosevelt's elected governor, and then 10 months later, the Great Depression. And he energetically comes up with this plan in New York State, which when he's elected president in 1932, is scaled up for the nation. It becomes the New Deal. And, of course, Frances Perkins is, uh, you know, a big part of that. And her wish list, in a lot of ways, became a lot of the pillars of the New Deal. And, and Franklin Roosevelt, you know, from the Empire State, calls on Anna Rosenberg to run two New Deal programs, first the National Industrial Recovery Administration in New York State, and then when that was ended by the Supreme Court, uh, she was in charge of, getting New Yorkers signed up for Social Security, which was this transformative, dynamic piece of legislation that changed uh, Americans' relationship with their government. Did Anna Rosenberg get along with Eleanor Roosevelt? Very much so. She was one of the only people, a very, very short list of people, who could get along with both Eleanor and Franklin. You know, you were either on Team Franklin or on Team Eleanor, but Anna Rosenberg was one of the very few people, along with Harry Hopkins and just a few others, who could who could uh, avoid those marital landmines and get along with both of them. That said, the Eleanor Roosevelt and Anna Rosenberg had a very formal way of communicating with each other for many years. From 1928 until 1942, it was a Mrs. Rosenberg, Mrs. Roosevelt kind of relationship. And then in 1942, in the aftermath of a conversation the two had about Japanese internment, Mrs. Roosevelt starts calling her Dear Anna. And the the relationship was very, very warm and very loving all the way until Eleanor Roosevelt died in the early 1960s. As happened with other women, for Franklin, uh, Anna Rosenberg was 
Well, not a secret friend, but I mean, they did things that Eleanor didn't know about. And I don't know what, you know, if there was anything really untoward, but she used to smuggle food to, to Franklin. Is that true? That's right. Anna Rosenberg would criticize the first lady for not being a very good cook. And that would be one of the one of the criticisms, not not to her face, but she would make those comments. And of course, Roosevelt's sons would say the same thing. You know, one of them said my father would have been quite a gourmand, but you know, my mother could only make scrambled eggs. So Anna Rosenberg would smuggle in, you know, these Hungarian dishes like chicken paprika and uh, she and the president would would eat these, you know, in, in the uh you know the sun porch or the the office off of his uh, on the second floor of the White House, and she had a remarkable access to FDR. You know she met both on book and off book something in the neighborhood of 150 one on one conversations with the president um, from the New Deal through World War II. And Anna Rosenberg uh, had to deal with men all the time, uh, and. Uh, did it very uh, successfully. How did she do it? Sort of the, the 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 magic ingredient for her was an ability to, whether you were a Rockefeller brother. Now she mentored Nelson Rockefeller, and and also was um, was David Rockefeller's boss at certain points during the war. She whether you were Rockefeller or whether you were a teamster or a union man, if you were talking to her. It was as if you were the only person in the world. So that's one thing. She she had this incredible ability to make you feel like you were the most important person uh, in the universe. The second thing was for men and for women. You know, so many women would would gain the the trust of powerful men, and then they pull up the ladder and say, you know, I made it, and other women aren't going to be able to do this. That was not Anna Rosenberg when she found herself in the halls of power. You know, she was also able to maintain the respect of women underneath her. So mm. I think I used the phrase in the book, she was one of the boys and one of the girls. And it's just a remarkable thing to have the respect of, of the wealthy and the modest and of men and women uh, of power and, and also of more um, powerful people and also not so powerful people. Let's go over some of the things she did in World War Two. I mean, she's important in the Depression, but World War Two. Uh, you know, with the world exploding around everyone, uh, she did some remarkable things. What did she do to preserve the secrecy of the atomic bomb program? Like you said, Bob, she had a, a number of tasks uh, given to her by FDR that were critical to winning the war and, and, in fact, even prospering afterwards. And one of them had to do with a very delicate situation, and, you know, you have to ask yourself, would this have been something that Francis Perkins could have done? But here it goes. The labs that were secretly devising what was going to be the atomic bomb in Chicago and out at Berkeley uh, were letting people go. So they were hiring people, and after 60 days, they were um, laying them off without telling them why. And these people, these were good-paying jobs. You know, they'd grown up in the Depression, and they asked, why? Why are we being laid off like this? Without, without notice, without any kind of indication of why. The answer was they had to lay these folks off at intervals lest they find out what they were working on, you know, enriching plutonium or whatever it was. So they wanted to unionize. So the, the uh, general, I think it was General Groves, in charge of the Manhattan Project, cables Roosevelt and says, we have an alarming situation. 
these folks want to unionize. It's a public process. It's going to blow the secrecy off the whole project. Roosevelt says to Anna Rosenberg, you need to go to Berkeley. You need to go to Chicago and get them to stand down. Eleanor Roosevelt says, Anna, how can you do this? You've always been pro-union. Um, but yet she has to do it. So she goes to these two labs, talks to the union men, and says, you know, fellas, I, I have nothing to tell you other than this is straight from the boss and it's an issue of national security. And because of the, the, the good relations that they had with her and with the president, they stood down and the secrecy of the Manhattan Project was safeguarded. And what did uh, Anna Rosenberg do for the GI Bill that came after the war? Well, Bob, this is incredible. Uh, in, in 1917, young Franklin Roosevelt had been sent by Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, to the, the trenches of World War I. And now he's the president, and it's 1944. And he chooses as his personal emissary, this is just incredible, Anna Rosenberg. So, and he says, says to the army without telling her he says see that anna doesn't get hurt so just weeks after d-day anna rosenberg finds herself in nazi occupied france with the american troops and they're still you know in that corner of normandy before they've broken out into the open country and for six weeks she travels with the 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 army as they race across france liberating towns and villages and she listens this was her mission find out from the gi's what they what what they hope for when they return and she listens to these guys you know as they're eating you know a meal off the hood of a jeep or or she's looking at their their pictures of their sweethearts she listens to them and what she finds out was just amazing to her they wanted a college education when they got back if they were lucky enough to get back they wanted a chance at the american dream you know the country that they were trying to help save and she said when she got back to washington she immediately was summoned to, to, to the White House, and she said Roosevelt lit up when he heard that. Yes, they wanted education. And the provisions that were then built into the Servicemen's Readjustment Act were all educational in nature, and that really elevated millions of Americans, of course, into the middle class. And Anna Rosenberg journeyed to, I think, Buffalo, New York, which was a big center for a war production, a production of, of weapons, and uh, took action that cut down on discrimination against African Americans. What happened there? That's right. You know, we think, I think there's a tendency for us to think of the arsenal of democracy as just sort of working as if we flipped on a, a switch. And it's, it's a little more complicated than that. The labor situation imperiled the operation of the arsenal of democracy. We had way too many workers in places like New York City, and too few workers in places like Portland, Oregon. And something had to be done. And one of the problem areas was Buffalo, Niagara, which built everything. You know, ordnance, planes for the Allies and for the Americans, parachutes, medicine, they just built everything. And Roosevelt, you know, realizing that some of these contracts were in danger of being, uh, you know, canceled, and, and that really can endanger lives in the battlefield, uh, summons Rosenberg and says, I'm going to make you the czar, the labor czar of Buffalo. Fix it. And she has to come up with almost 100,000 workers, Bob. And what she does, she gets women, but not just single women, uh, women with children, married women with children. And they need all the logistics support, like child care and a place to cash their check at 3 in the morning when they get off their shift. So she does all of that. And black Americans, and when Buffalo says, you know, the leaders of Buffalo and the and the the owners of the factory say, we're not going to hire blacks. 
she sits them down and says, this is no time for disunity. This is all hands on deck, and they listen to her. And so black Americans made tremendous gains in Buffalo at, the, at that time in 1942-43, and there are studies that show that those gains were kept uh, in subsequent generations. So she, uh, as the uh, Time magazine called it the Rosenberg Plan, but others called it the Buffalo Plan, but the Buffalo Plan was rolled out nationwide and really helped the arsenal of democracy fire on all cylinders for the duration of the war. And we come to 1945, the war is still on, but FDR dies. Uh, but Rosenberg's influence in government continues, correct? Which is so remarkable. I, when I spoke to her grandson about what made her uh, tick, he brought that up. He said, not only could my grandmother get into, not only could, could Anna get into the halls of power, the corridors of power with whether it was business or the military or politics, but she could stay there. And when you think about a relationship, a confidant relationship, it's so true. Usually it's a, a person has a confidant relationship with another more powerful person. And when that more powerful person dies or leaves the scene, uh, the relationship ends. That's not the case with Anna. She was a trusted advisor to President Truman. Uh, she helped Dwight Eisenhower pivot from soldier to statesman, and she was a lifelong friend and advisor uh, to Lyndon Johnson. So she was on the stage, uh, or, or rather sort of behind the curtain, for all of these presidencies from FDR through Lyndon Johnson. She was also close with uh, General George Marshall, and it was Marshall, that wasn't it, who encouraged President Truman uh, to name her Assistant Secretary of Defense. That's right. It's the desperate early months of the Korean War. It's summer and fall of 1950. It's so desperate that President Truman had to call out uh, George Marshall from retirement. And, and I need you back in Washington. I need you to take over as Secretary of Defense. Now, George Marshall, you know, who's 70 years old, he's got kidney ailments. He could have picked any person you know, any admiral or general or business leader to be his number two at the Pentagon during the war to try and get the American army rebuilt and, and, and refunded. But he chose Anna Rosenberg because she could go up on the hill and lobby, and she knew, you know, what they used to call manpower issues, what we would call personnel issues, backwards and forwards. So he writes her a letter, handwritten letter, in October of 1950, Dear Anna, I hope you can see your way to come back to Washington. And what he wanted is he wanted someone to come and rebuild the size and strength of the U.S. armed forces, which had been decimated by budget cuts after World War II. And so she accepted that. And she told President Truman, she told George Marshall, I have a lot of bullseyes on my chest. I'm Jewish. I'm an immigrant. I have an accent. I'm a civilian woman. I'm a former New Dealer. And yet they still chose her and they wanted her to be in that position. They were amazed. They were shocked. They were uh, troubled, but I must say most of them were just a little bewildered. So she's charged with being a communist, but she successfully weathers that storm. That's right. She had taken the interim appointment. She'd already started work at the Pentagon, her legendarily long hours. And Senator Joe McCarthy gets wind of this plan. And although he's not on the Senate Armed Services Committee, he delays the full Senate vote with uh, the work of some of his allies, and they have two weeks to come up with a smear campaign, which is very ugly. And they find a guy in New York 
who will testify that Anna Rosenberg was a secret communist. So he comes down to Washington. The Armed Services Committee has to reopen the hearings. And there's a very dramatic face-to-face moment where this man accuses her of being the same person who is the secret communist. And she says, um, you know, you're lying. And his story, in fact, under questioning from the senators, unraveled in a hurry. And, Bob, this is one of the first instances uh, where someone had punched back at Senator McCarthy and, and landed a blow because this was the, the beginning of the McCarthy reign of terror, and he was ending careers, uh, especially women, um, prematurely just by these uh, baseless allegations. So here's someone who, who fights back, and she emerged, uh, she spent 26 months at the Pentagon, so she emerged with her integrity and her career intact. But we haven't talked anything really about her personal life. She's married for a long time to Mr. Rosenberg, Julius, known as Mike, but she divorces him sort of late into their marriage and, and marries somebody else that she had met uh, in government. It's a very unique relationship, especially for the time. You have a you know a woman uh, who is the breadwinner, essentially, and, and the more prominent of the two. She... Um, Married very young. She married Mike Rosenberg very, very young. Uh, he'd been a veteran of World War One, and he was not interested in really her life in Washington. So it was, again, very unique. You know, she was she spent, um, you know, half of her life essentially in Washington uh, without him and would always come back to New York on Sunday for family day. And uh, they had a son, Thomas, who also was in World War Two, but very, very, uh, very uncommon type of relationship. After many years of marriage, after three decades of marriage, she separated, and in and then they got divorced. And in 1962, she married a man named Paul Hoffman, who was the first administrator of the Marshall Plan. And the two of them really formed a power couple that, that we would recognize today. They were you know close friends with Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson and, and along that New York-Washington uh, corridor, very, very powerful. And they had a wonderful 10 years together. He was a little bit older than Anna, but they had a terrific 10 years together. And, and um, one gathers that, that that marriage was very loving indeed. And Anna Rosenberg loved hats. Her trademark were these very fancy, very elaborate hats that I think we associate with, you know, maybe like the, the 40s and 50s. And President Roosevelt loved to tease her about these hats. So one day in 1938, the New Deal... Uh, Anna was the only woman director of, you know, the only woman regional director of Social Security. She's in Washington wearing one of these hats, and President wheels in and says, Now, Anna, that's a very fine hat you have on today, but I can't tell if you're coming or going. And she <laughs> says, Well, Mr. President, that's because it's a New Deal hat. <laughs> Christopher Gorham is author of a book about Anna Rosenberg called The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. It is time for the history mystery. We'll explain. Okay, we're explaining. On today's podcast, we heard about FDR's New Deal, very well-known New Deal deal back in the 1930s. Mm FDR's successor, though, here now we get into the, the, the mystery. FDR's successor, Harry Truman, also had a catchy name for his domestic policies. Now the question, was Truman's program called the Real Deal, 
the fair deal or the square deal? There's enough information there to confuse you, but we'll give you the answer. The real deal, the fair deal, or the square deal? Well, let me tell you a little bit about our fundraising efforts for the Historian's Podcast. We have raised less than half of this year's $7,000 goal in the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. Please donate to keep the podcast uh, going. We've passed the halfway point in the year some time ago. You can be connected to our GoFundMe campaign by going to our website, bobcudmore.com, uh, look for the blue button, click the link in the blue button, and it'll, it will take you to the GoFundMe campaign. Or you can send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You may give anonymously, and no contribution is too large or too small. Now the answer to today's history mystery. Harry Truman, as president, advocated for the fair deal. Was the fair deal successful, you ask? When Truman left office, at best, his fair deal was just a partial success. On the plus side, though, Truman had banned racial discrimination in federal government hiring and ordered an end to segregation in the military. On the negative side, for example, Truman's fair deal had proposed national health care, and that didn't happen, certainly not then. When Anna Rosenberg was Assistant Secretary of Defense during the Korean War, the nuclear arms race began between the U.S. and Russia. In my hometown of Amsterdam, New York, and throughout the nation, there was an emphasis on civil defense. Edward Cushman, Amsterdam school superintendent, issued instructions for surviving an atomic bomb attack in October 1950. It was the year after the USSR tested its atomic bomb. Atomic bomb drills then involved getting under our desks or lining up against a basement wall for me, an elementary student at Amsterdam's Roman Avenue School. Cushman cited information from the state of New York. At the suggestion, he said, of the state education department, we're handing out directions for pupils in case of an unexpected atomic bomb attack. While there seems to be no probability at the present time for such an attack, these atomic bomb attacks might come without warning. Amsterdam had a civil defense office in the City Hall Annex, a small building on the grounds of City Hall on Church Street. Students were advised to get to cover if an air raid warning was given before the attack, go to a public shelter, the nearest building, your own cellar, even a tree to shield you from burns or a thick wall that was to protect against gamma rays. If there was no warning and just a blinding glare in the sky, the advice was to turn your back on the blast and drop to ground with face on arm, eyes closed for a full minute. If indoors, 
The memo said students should drop to the floor or under desks, tables, or beds with their backs to windows. There were many points to remember, including get washed up, wash yourself hard all over, Cushman wrote, lacking soap and water, robe with paper or cloth. Eat and drink nothing that has been exposed to radioactivity. Tight containers, probably cans, are the one sure protection. A Geiger counter, he wrote, will spot radioactivity in food or clothing. Obey directions of proper authorities. They must aid wounded, put out fires, clear streets, and so on. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.